Hello, hello everyone. I am Lucas Prado and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Hope you're ready right now and let's all dive deeper into God's Word. The Christian walk is not static. That's why we call it a walk after all. Just as the seasons change, so does the landscape of our faith as we go through life. We've seen and heard these expectations of what a good Christian should do or look like or sound like. But this one-size-fits-all mindset falls short of God's plan for us. All of us fearfully and wonderfully have to keep finding out what it feels like and looks like to be faithful in each stage of life. Although our walks are unique, we're not alone. We're able to gain profound wisdom when we're open to discipleship with those who are further along the way and have walked similar paths. Firm faith is a mark of discipleship in each age and stage of life. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning, good morning, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. Okay, we're going to take a moment and we're just going to pause. Uh, we did vision last week. And before we dive back in fully to the book of Acts, we're going to take three weeks out to focus on how we work out the discipleship dimensions, for example, and, and just our walk with Jesus in different ages and stages of life. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, how we pass on the faith generationally. Next week, we're going to wrestle through uh, how we invite Jesus into marriage. And then three weeks from now, we're going to have a, a whole conversation about how do and how should our expectations change depending on single or married or single again or little kids or no kids or empty nesters. How, how does life affect the rhythms of faith. So this is, the goal is just to be a very practical conversation about our walk with Jesus in the next three weeks. And then we'll dive back into the book uh, of Acts and see where the Holy Spirit takes us as we're really into 2024. It's interesting, a lot of uh, us who are Christians, I know not all of us who are watching are Christians, we who are, uh, wonder and worry about the next generation and how the faith will be transmitted, given to children or those who are connected to us who are younger. And a lot of times we wonder if it's going to work or if it's all going to fall apart. Now, uh, interesting, I was reading some research this week and one person said many religious adults, especially if they are parents or I would add even grandparents, feel that maybe the faith of the younger generation isn't as strong as it was in our day. And so, interestingly, a research professor of social work at the University of Southern California took the tools of his trade and he did a 35-year study on 350 families. He did it from 1970 to 2005. He released a major book in 2013 out of Oxford called Families and Faith, How Religion Is Passed Down Across Generations. And interestingly, very uh, helpful, he said the majority of children end up sharing the religious preferences of their parents. Six out of 10 parents in that massive study with all the ups and downs of culture and society and change have young adult children who still follow in the same religious footpath or footsteps of their parents. Now, interesting, if you dive into the studies uh, more, if you uh, belong to a mainline church like an Anglican or Presbyterian or United Church, especially if it's gone more of a more liberal or progressive sort of way where it's more about moralism and being kind and nice and it's not as authoritative or direct, 
it drops to 30%, three out of 10. But for congregations that are historic, creedal, uh, they use the old word, the non-political way of saying evangelical, it's still around 60%. So six out of 10 kids that grow up in community uh, will end up probably following in that footstep. And it's interesting, the psalmist talks about this extensively. Psalm, 144, Psalm 145.4, one generation commends your works to another and they tell of your mighty acts. Now, many of us gathered here today or listening online would say that we are, we'd use vernacular like, I'm saved. I've been born again. I crossed the line of faith. I have been converted. I am a follower of Jesus who is the Christ. Yet, as we're trying to wrestle down, how do we pass on the faith to the next generation? Well, there's something that comes up all the time in conversations when I'm listening. And I see this especially in and around baptisms. Uh, there are so many people that choose not to get baptized because of what I'm about to share, and also many that actually choose to get baptized still feel uh, the tension that their story is not profound or great. You, you feel the tension when you listen to people's testimonies, their stories, and they say, well, I never was part of another religion, or I wasn't a new ager, or I wasn't involved in another faith, or I wasn't involved in a dark lifestyle, I didn't have a radical encounter with Jesus, I just was brought up as a Christian. I'm not a former drug dealer. I was not a party cocaine, multiple sexual partners person. I'm not a former Muslim or Hindu. I, I wasn't some intellectual atheist who radically encountered God or had my worldview changed, or I wasn't like a top sort of Bay Street investor that had everything and my life felt so empty. And then I met Jesus. I'm just a kid that grew up in a Christian home. It was okay. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was really bad. And I'm still following Jesus. On an emotive level, when you have these conversations around baptism, a lot of people feel almost like second class or let down, or they even feel jealous, or interestingly, as we're going to talk about, sometimes a lot of Christians who grew up in Christian families are jealous. They didn't get to have a bad run in history and then got to come back. So that's why I want to start this conversation uh, like this. I want to start this series in an ordinary, normal, non-epic not a oh my goodness moment, just the normal rhythmed place. I want to start this series uh, that reflects the story, not of all of us, but some of us that accepted Jesus at three or six or nine or 12. We grew up in a Christian home and decided that the faith of our mothers or fathers or grandparents or aunts or uncles was real. It was actually capital T true. It was right. And we just sort of kept walking in the same direction with Jesus over a long period. Now, I've preached out of the passage I'm going to go through twice before. In my opinion, this is one of the best passages that speaks to what I will call family faith, given faith, holy faith passed down. And we miss it because uh, we can read it so quickly, and it almost feels just sort of like we're counting history, that we miss the power of it. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. This is how Paul begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. So he starts like this. He's like, hey, everyone, it's Paul. I'm writing you again. You know, the guy sent out to plant churches among Jews and non-Jews. And just as we're getting going, I want to remind you this wasn't my idea. I hated Jesus. I hated all the Christians. I was involved in killing or jailing them. And then I had a radical encounter with Jesus and God saved me. And not only saved me, he commissioned me. And it was his idea and not my idea. And I'm an apostle by God's will. And then he says, and, and by the way, I want to encourage you now, the phrase he used is this, 
the promise of life. Very, very first verse, promise of life. He says, look, I want to remind you of what you have. I want to remind you of what binds us all together in our diversity. I want to remind us of our hope. That promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. This is the heart, the soul of our movement. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The promise of life is the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. I mean, he wrote this in an earlier letter, 1 Timothy 4.8. Physical training has some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So if you're a Christian, uh, this promise, the promise of life, is something we have now, of course, in part, and we'll have fully in the new heavens, the new earth. And the heart, the epicenter, the object of our faith, the hope that our faith is based on is Jesus Christ. He is the gospel, the promise of life. And just to do this little summary again, gospel means joyous news, good news, a great story. In Greek, it was used in secular ways, in, in two different ways. Number one, when a herald would run from a battlefield and declare, we won the battle, that was called good news. Or when an heir was born to a king, then there would be a declaration of good news, of gospel. Now, there are all sorts of, by the way, images that are used throughout the New Testament to sort of express to us what the promise of life, the gospel is. Uh, we've talked through them in years before. Uh, there's sort of like the law court. We're all guilty before a holy God. We've all rebelled and walk away. He says, you're guilty. And then he takes off his robes. And basically, as the judge says, now I'm going to justify you. Though you're guilty, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to go to jail for you. I'm taking the bullet. Uh, there's in the world of finance, there's this idea of him covering or paying something back. And so imagine, I've said this before, you have an $800 million mortgage. Just imagine how much interest you're pay paying every th single second. You can't pay it off. Your children can't pay it off. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And Jesus walks into the bank and says, here's the $800 million. I'm paying off the mortgage. And also, I'm even going to deal with the penalties to break that massive mortgage. Uh, 2,000 years ago, another image used by Christians was the uh, radical image of slavery. Someone had been uh, captured in war, thrown into a slave market, and they were being sold basically as, a, as nothing. And Jesus walks into the slave market, pays the price, and makes you family again. And then there's all the religious connotations, uh, connotations, that is, that we see when we face God, all the Jewish stuff. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our scapegoat. This is what Christ has done for us. He's pardoned us. He's liberated us. He's filled the gap for us. He stepped in for us. He stands for us. He pays the ransom for us. He calls us friends. Even the image of warrior comes up. He's overcome all evil. Christ drove out the prince of this world, broke the power, not just of death and sin, but Satan. This, this famous verse, Colossians 3.15, Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Good news of great joy for all people. In other words, anyone can be given, here it is the connection, life. Anyone can experience the promise of life through the person and work of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 1. That's what he's implying. So with all that amazing truth shared by every single Christian on earth, then we enter into this moment where Paul's talking to a very close friend of his, a guy named Timothy. And he says, hey, Timothy, my dear son, uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and 
Christ Jesus our Lord. So Timothy's a younger pastor. He's being mentored by Paul. He's like a son to Paul. He's actually a very close friend. And he starts by saying, hey, listen, we've got this shared promise of life. And hey, Timothy, grace to you, undeserved mercy, a peace to you, an uninterrupted relationship between you and God the Father and you, the Lord, you and the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And by the way, maybe you haven't caught this. In two verses, who God is is clear. The gospel is implied is now clear. And Paul's relationship with Timothy is clear. And then in this moment, Paul begins to write to give this young pastor courage, to help this young pastor to keep going in the face of internal fights, false teaching, personal struggles, and to understand the Bible and live under it, all the things. He says, listen, I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as day and night, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Okay, just keep the verse up, because this is going to matter. That word serve is used time and time and time again in the Greek version of the Old Testament for priestly worship by priests to the only true living God in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And what this is implying is now Christian service has fulfilled and replaced what's even happening in Jerusalem in that moment. And this is such a profound needed insight and tie between service and what we're going to talk about related to pass down faith. Basically, Paul says, listen, I serve as my ancestors did. I, Paul, worship like my ancestors did. I walk in the great line of true faith and the true family of faith like my ancestors did. And basically, just to get, get this as we get going, Christianity is not a new religion. Christianity has fulfilled Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith was a God-given picture, a foreshadow of what God would do for Jewish people and non-Jewish people through Jesus. Christianity is the one true God bringing the world back to himself through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Paul walked with Jesus, and his walk with Jesus is a fulfillment of the Jewish faith, not a break from the Jewish faith. In a very generalized way, remember, Paul himself is Jewish. He would say this in Romans 11, 25. Hey, Christian brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this truth, which is no longer a secret. I will keep you from thinking you are so wise. Some Jews have become hard until the right amount of people who are not Jews come to God. Then all the Jews will be saved, as the Old Testament says. The one who saves from punishment of sin will come out of Jerusalem. He will turn Jews from doing sinful things. And this is my promise to them that I will take away their sins. The Jews are fighting against the good news because they hate the good news. It has helped you who are not Jewish. But God still loves Jewish people because he has chosen them and because his promise to their early fathers. God did not change his mind when he chose, chose men and gave them his gifts. At one time, you did not obey God, this time to non-Jews. But when, when the Jews did not receive God's gift, you did. It was because they did not obey. Uh, the Jews will not obey now. God's loving kindness to you will someday uh, turn them to him. Then Jew Jewish people may have his loving kindness also. God has said that all people, all men have broken his laws, but he will show loving kindness on all of them. So remember, Paul's basically writing this. He is Jewish. He's a world-class Jewish thinker, by the way. And he's basically saying, I serve the true living God found ex fully through Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And by the way, so do you. And Timothy, I thank God for you. You're my friend. You're my co-worker. You're my spiritual son. And we're actually follow, following appropriately in our, in, our, in our ancestors' footsteps. And then he says in verse 4, We're calling you with tears. I long to see you so I may be filled with joy. 
So there's a deep personal relationship here. But then we come to the verse. Some of you are like, John, what does this have to do with passing down the faith to my teenager or my, my grandchild or my niece? No, here it is. After all that is clear, who God is, what is the gospel, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, what is Christianity, then, then, in the boring, normal, family-based, unspectacular moment, then it comes out. Verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, this is to Timothy, which lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives also in you. Okay, let's talk about Timothy's family because the drama and the complexity matters. We only have one other passage that tells us about their family that gives us insight into the family dynamics. It comes, interestingly, from the book of Acts. Okay, in Acts chapter 16, this is what Paul writes, or, or Luke is writing, sorry. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke of Timothy well. Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised Timothy because the Jews that lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And you're like, oh, this is so boring or weird or historical. What does this have to do with anything? Okay, Timothy's mom is Jewish, and as we're about to find out, so is his grandmother. So within a worldview 2,000 years ago, and still, by the way, today, Timothy is considered Jewish because if your mom is Jewish, you're Jewish. Now, Timothy's dad is Greek. Why does that matter? Well, this means his mom, and probably grandmother, had become a nominal Jew or an apostate Jew, a Jew outside of God's full love and family, because she married an outsider who had not fully converted to Judaism. She married someone that did not worship the one true living God. And so, from a Jewish perspective, Timothy's mom, grandmother, and Timothy would be considered unclean because their dad or husband or son-in-law is Greek. He would eat and wear and touch unclean things and not worship the true living God. So they would be considered not faithful synagogue-going Jews. They are outside of the community. So Timothy also, it says, until Paul shows up, is not circumcised even though he's ethnically considered Jewish by everyone who's not Jewish. And some of you are like, okay, John, what does Timothy's private parts and foreskins have to do with anything? Well, let me clarify this because the word circumcision is used a lot in the Bible. Circumcision is a physical sign of the Jewish faith. And by the way, it's God's idea in the Old Testament. This idea is offensive to some of you or doesn't make sense to many of us. Uh, some of us who grew up in church kept hearing that word and just got embarrassed or didn't know and sort of we're like, whatever. Others of you are like, why, why are we talking about this today? Well, as one person brilliantly wrote, no doubt this surgery was symbolic of the sinfulness of people that's passed from generation to generation. This graphic symbol of need for the removing of sin became the sign of Judaism. Yet, for many Jews, by Paul's day, the meaning had been forgotten. And it had actually became more of a sign of freedom, I'm in, versus a sign of, wow, I need salvation. One person wrote it like this, Jews believe that circumcision somehow secured your salvation. One famous rabbi in his book, on, the, on his commentary in the book of Moses says, our rabbi said that no circumcised man will ever see hell. Another one wrote, circumcision saves you from hell. Uh, in the Midrash, Tillam said, God swore to Abraham that no one who's circumcised will ever go to hell. 
So you're like, uh, John, I'm ready? Here it is. Timothy, mom and grandma, ethnically Jewish and religiously sort of Jewish. Timothy is raised by a Jewish mom, sort of. Dad's a pagan. To everyone else, Timothy is considered Jewish. To the Jewish community, he's not saved and he's going to hell and he's not really Jewish because he's not circumcised. In other words, it's a really mixed up, blended family on the best of days. Now, in the middle of all that religious and political and spiritual stuff, something amazing took place. Both Timothy's mom and grandmother came to faith in Jesus. Both of these Jewish women encountered the good news of Jesus, believed he was the Messiah, the Son of God, believed he rose from the dead, and shared this new fulfillment of the Jewish faith and their personal trust of Jesus with Timothy and shared God's word. How do we know this? Because later there's this little, or before there's this little verse that sort of, uh, it's right before the best description of the whole Bible. It's 2 Timothy 3.15. From infancy, this is Paul saying this, you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So by the time we get to Timothy, you have three generations of people that believe that Jesus is who he claimed, and you have three generations that have sort of passed down the faith. Now, then Paul says... I am reminded of your sincere faith, which lived first in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and now I'm persuaded also lives in you. So Paul says, Timothy, your faith in Jesus is sincere. And actually, this is the one that was living inside your mom and in your grandmother, and now indwells you. Now, Timothy had to accept this. You don't just get it because you are in the same room, but it's real. Now, for Paul... <clears throat> the statement that the indwelling good news is in him is humongous because when Paul uses the word to live in or indwell, here's what he means. Let me just read three verses, three uh, sections. Just listen closely. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, indwelling in you, God who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his spirit who lives in you. Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs of the spirit, singing to God with grateful, uh, with great, great gratitude in your heart. Or, or 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted into you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You're like... So what? Okay, ready? Paul is saying, Timothy, okay, the Spirit of God literally dwells inside of you. And because he dwells inside of you, that is guarantee that you will be physically resurrected from the dead. The good news of Jesus indwells you and has led you and is leading you to worship, encouragement, thanksgiving. The truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, the truth about salvation, the truth about Jesus' relation to Judaism indwells you. This was introduced, this was passed on to you from mom and grandma, but it was given to you ultimately by God the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, it's not just mom or grandma who probably weren't fully in the synagogue but still were reading the Bible at home. 
it wasn't just mom and grandma that passed this along. Later we see that others helped Timothy walk in his faith, gave him faith, passed on faith. It was the church around Timothy that helped too. We see this in Acts 16. This is where Paul goes next. So he says, uh, you know, there's this whole community around you. So listen to what Paul says. For this reason, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of hands in church community. For the spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So you've got God's sovereign work. You've got mom, you've got grandma, you've got the church. Okay, I'm just going to pause like I, I've done before. This is my story. My mom and dad uh, grew up as Christians. I think I'm a fifth or sixth generation Christian. Uh, before I was born, my parents were missionaries, lived all through Europe, uh, then came home, had me, and then I grew up in Ecuador in the 80s. I grew up in a, in a missional context. My grandfather was part of worship teams in Massey Hall in the 1940s with Youth for Christ when Billy Graham's whole thing was just taking off. My great-grandmother was one of the founders of the prayer ministry at People's Church in Toronto. One of my other grandfathers worked for Youth for Christ in the Alliance Church. One of my great-aunts was a missionary and lived in Zaire, I believe. My great-great-grandfather was part of the Free Church of Scotland. And if you go through my family, there are Baptists and Alliance and, and Vineyard and all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all through the family tree. Uh, my exposure to the Christian faith wasn't just at home. Uh, I attended Calvary Baptist Church just down the street in Oshawa. A Sunday school teacher, when I was three, told me about the good news of Jesus. I had one of those moments. I literally came home, said to my mom, I want to accept Jesus. I Even at three, I'm sinful. I need discovering. I had that sort of classic moment. I knelt with my mom. I accepted Jesus. I actually remember uh, doing that. Uh, and I started growing in my faith. My mom and dad have been like central in the development of my faith. My dad uh, has been this unbelievable example of perseverance and uh, an unbelievable example showing me the difference between skepticism and doubt. He's been through a ton of stuff in his life and a lot of pain and really struggled with church and institution, but was faithful to Jesus and demonstrated that to me. My mom has just demonstrated faith long-term obedience in a simple long-term direction. When I was in junior high and wrestling with my faith, it was a youth pastor and his wife and some key volunteers that rallied around me and helped me understand my faith. When I joined our church here, when it was called Steeple Hill, another group of leaders rallied around me and helped me. And I've just sort of kept walking in the same direction uh, for basically 45 years. Now, was everything in my family amazing? holy or right? <laughs> my parents and us would be like, no, not even close. Not at all. Are all of my church experiences been amazing and awesome? No, some amazing, some terrible. But that's the point. Just like Timothy's family was mixed up and complicated and not sorted out, so the same. And also with church, God uses good, bad, broken, and beautiful in family and church context to pass on the holy faith to the next generation. It's gift. And by the way, my story is not second class, and my story is not lesser, nor is yours. But as we talk about how we're going to intentionally do this, let me just pause. And I just want to put something on the table that, I, that I've said the last two times I've been in this passage. For you who are second, third, fourth, fifth generation Christians, this has been your deal through family. I just want to remind you of this. Some of us have holy history, and we come from Christian families, and and we can become secretly angry or jealous 
that we didn't get our moment of rebellion. We didn't get our dark period. We didn't get to dance with the devil and play and have all the fun and then, then come back to God. We didn't get to you know, have our cake and eat it too. I just want to say to you, if this is you, just be thankful for your holy history. What a gift. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what an eternal life-giving moment. What a, what a promise. Uh, thank God that you grew up in a church, even if it wasn't great all the time or even went too far in certain directions. Thank God that you actually grew up knowing the scripture, who had God's word. Millions of Christians around the world are desperate just to own this, access this. Thank God that Jesus' message was given to you. And if you are truly struggling with the, I didn't get my moment, which by the way, you should be really honest about it. You should talk to God about it. Don't hide it. I just want to give you this, this incredible psalm. And, and this psalm has been... I would say so key in my walk and run, and maybe it will help some of you who have similar histories. Uh, this is someone struggling with why it seems easier to be wicked and, and broken than it does to be righteous and a little boring. Psalm 73, 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, hmm, my foot almost slipped. I, I nearly lost my foothold. I, I envied Oh, listen to that. I envied. I was jealous. I wanted what the arrogant had when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. By the way, if you've never admitted that as a Christian, you should. It seems they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human wills, uh, ills. They say in verse 11, how does God know? Does the most high know anything? This is what the wicked are like always free of care. They go on getting rich, amassing wealth. Surely, here it is, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It's not been worth it. It's not been worth it. And then I love verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, I was deeply troubled. I struggled. This really bothered me. How come people get to go and do all this stuff I've been told not to do and, and their life is so amazing? Then he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. For us who come from Christian memory, this is a call to continue in the faith you've been given, to persevere in what God sovereignly placed in your family. Don't walk away from the gift of faith. You must keep going because actually you now are going to be responsible to give it to the next generation, the gift that you were given. This is joy, love, and a gift. The vessels that gave, us, gave it to us sometimes were not great or mixed up or distracted or really broken. But there is an intergenerational ethic on an internal scale to do this. Even if it was messy, even if it was mixed up, even if it was not pure or blended, can you still not see God's hand? Maybe you need to just thank God that you grew up in a Christian environment or leaders or family gave you faith. Maybe you've never gone back and just said thank you to them. Okay, uh, there's a call to pass down the faith to the generation that, we, that is below us. So to all the grandmothers listening today that love Jesus, that pray and try to show your grandchildren, whether biological or spiritual, um, who he is, I just want to remind you, God hears you, he sees you, he's with you. Just keep going. Uh, be, be a Lois for this generation. Uh, to all the mothers, biological or spiritual, that love Jesus and pray for kids, keep pointing them to Jesus. 
I just want to remind you, parents spend between like over 3,000 hours a year with kids. Pastors get the access of maybe 40, 60, 100 hours at max. You are a profound difference maker. Uh, you first, pastors later. Uh, be a Lois and be a Eunice. Share God's word. Model Jesus' love the best you can. Do you notice there's no mention of Timothy's uh, father, other than he's Greek? And I just want to say this, like I said last time, I, I have the great privilege of traveling the world and uh, being in so many cultures and being in so many churches. They're so diverse. But one of the things I find universally true is so many churches are filled with mothers, grandmothers, and children, and so few men. So if you're a man here today and you're a Christian, I know some of you aren't, but we who are, if you're listening to me right now within the sound of my voice, you also are called to show family or the next generation Jesus. As a man, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Read scripture, tell family or others around you how you met Jesus. Uh, we as Christian men also need to be honest and open and unashamed and humble and meek about the gospel. But don't buy into this weird thing. I think it's starting to disappear, and yet I still see it so many times. Women are more spiritual than men. It's just not true. Fathers and grandfathers, God sees you and, and, and your biological and spiritual children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. They need you so much. Give them the gift of Jesus at a young age and let God work out the details. One pastor who um, I honor, but I deeply struggle with, actually, for a lot of the political things he does and some of the stuff he teaches, but um, years ago, this, this pastor said something that was just so helpful in this conversation. He says, it is far more important what you leave in your children than what, it is far more important what you leave in your children than what you leave to your children. Wow. Family faith is not just about grandparents or parents or aunts or uncles. It's also about church. Timothy was mentored by Paul and others. So to all of you that serve here at Sanctus, or maybe you're listening from another church, you give your time at youth, or you're a kids worker, or you run a connect group, or you run Alpha, or you can fill in the blanks. You may never see the results of the hundreds of kids and teens, but be faithful. Because this is about generations and generations of people you will never meet until the new heavens and the new earth. Don't give up serving. Don't think what you're doing is irrelevant. I'm actually living proof that Sunday school teachers and youth pastors and youth volunteers and mums and dads and grandmas and grandpas make a massive difference. My Sunday school teacher never truly saw what happened in my life. But when we meet in the new heavens and the new earth, oh, she'll find out. Uh, just because you um, pass on the faith doesn't mean your kids will say yes, by the way. A family faith can provide the environment to encounter, but the person still has to choose the encounter. And yes, six out of 10 kids probably will do it, but four probably won't. And I just want to encourage all of you that have been faithful where your children have walked away or didn't embrace Jesus. Don't feel like a failure. They're in God's hands. Continue to pray and model Jesus to them and trust your children to him. But don't let the devil or your own heart say that you failed. If you were faithful, you did your job. A few parting thoughts. How, how can we do this well with kids or if we're an aunt with nieces or nephews? How do we do this? Well, number one, can I share something that I think is so obvious and yet is missing? Openly talk about how and when you met Jesus. 
or the process of how you met Jesus to the younger generation. Tell them how you got saved. <laughs> tell, tell them how you came to faith. Whether you remember the moment like I do or you can't remember the moment, but you know what happened. Just tell them. Do your kids, do your grandkids, do your nieces, and do they actually know how you became a Christian? Do they know your story? Don't presume they do. Number two, very important. Invite hard questions about the Christian faith. Demonstrate you're not afraid to struggle with hard things. Admit you struggle also. One of the best things my dad did for me time and time again is he demonstrated to me the difference between doubt and skepticism. He taught me that doubt should always be in the middle of a Christian conversation, not, be, not run from it. He proved to me, actually, that the Christian faith could handle itself. My mom demonstrated faithfulness, honesty, integrity in one direction. My dad demonstrated perseverance, and he also demonstrated why doubt isn't death for a Christian. Admit to your kids you struggle about things, and you're not sure about things. You don't have all the answers. And also ask them, what do they struggle with? Uh, here's another thing. If we're going to pass on the Christian faith, um, we have no time to play games with our kids or the next generation. Be honest about your own faults. Be honest about your own struggles. Uh, don't, don't Jesus cover them all the time. In, in our family, uh, those who know our family well, when you hang out with us, we hide nothing. It's just, it's a whole rodeo when you hang out at our house and some of you are laughing somewhere across our sites or beyond because you know us. But just like, be honest about your faults. Uh, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're perfect. And we just need to be honest. The more we're honest about our struggles and our faults and learning how to forgive each other, the more the faith is genuine. Can I encourage you to pray with your kids? Pray with your kids. And if you struggle with prayer, even say to them, I struggle to pray, but let's just do this together. Can I encourage you to read your Bible with your kids. Tell them the good news of Jesus. Can I also encourage you to point them to good resources when they hit different ages and stages? Oh, and I beg you, don't make the resources political and avoid conspiracy garbage. Run from it. Don't be disciplined by social media and by politics. Don't be discipled by social media and politics and those algorithms and doomsday. That's what's already eating at the next generation's soul. Don't you do it. Point them to things that are thoughtful, good, long-term, honest. And lastly, show by your life where your priorities are. If you make the things of God a priority, then the things of God will be the priority most likely for the next generation. If you don't make them a priority, they won't be a priority. As a former youth pastor and being in ministry for 26 years, I can tell you that's just true. What a great opportunity we have to pass on the faith. The stats are not actually against us. They're more for us than we thought. And interestingly, as I'm quietly watching uh, Gen Z, but even more Gen Alpha, it would seem that God is up to something I haven't probably seen in 20 plus years. So let's just do this. Lord, we pray for the younger generation among us. Uh, at different ages and stages. We pray the faith would be passed on. We pray it would move from family faith to personal faith. Help us as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and, and, and mentors and friends to live authentic lives even when we struggle. Help us to pass on the faith. Give moms and dads and others courage to talk about faith, to pray, to overcome their own doubts and struggles, or at least be honest with them. We just pray that there would be a freedom across Sanctus right now for the next generation to encounter and know the works of God. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. And we all said together, yeah.
Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. And last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit the follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Well, that's it for today, and may God bless you so, so much.